Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Talking France, a podcast brought to you by The Local in which we talk about France and the presidential election, which is now under two weeks away. I'm your host, Ben McPartland. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, I'll be joined by The Local France's editor, Emma Pearson, and our reporter here in Paris, Sam Bradpiece. Together, Emma and Sam will bring us up to date with the latest news and developments in this unique election as the first round of voting edges ever closer. We'll also try to explain the rise and fall in the polls of the election race's most controversial personality, Eric Zemmour, as well as look at the candidates' policies that could have the most impact on foreigners here in France. Political columnist John Litchfield will join us once again from Normandy to discuss whether there's a chance of a huge twist in the tail for the battle for the Elysee and whether France has changed in the five years since the last election. And we also have a fascinating interview with French legal academic Rim Sarah Alouane, who we asked to explain France's increasingly contentious political discourse around Islam. And she'll also spell out what laïcité in France really means. And if you want to know what j'ai le cul entre deux chaises and islamo-gauchism means in the context of French politics, then stay with us to the end. So without further ado, let's crack on. I'm joined by Emma and Sam. Hi, Emma. Hi, Sam. Hello. All right, Ben. Thanks for joining us today. So listen, let's crack straight on. Monday this week is the official start of the campaign. I thought we've been campaigning for months now. What does this mean, the official start of the campaign? What changes, Emma? Well, we pretty much have been campaigning for months, really. But the thing you'll really notice if you're in France is the big grey boards that go up outside all of the polling stations, which is places like schools, mairies, leisure centres, that kind of thing. That's kind of the, the main thing, but there's also some extra rules that kick into place one once the campaign officially starts. For example, uh, equal broadcasting regulations. All the candidates have to be given proportionate airtime when they're on the telly. Uh, candidates all get to write to work to homes and tell you how brilliant they are, and that's paid for by the taxpayer. So there's a few little things like that, but to be honest, it's really no different to what's been happening already. Sure, so people will see these election posters all around. They, by and large, get defaced after a couple of days, but they will be there. They'll be noticeable. If we talk about the latest polls for the 12 candidates that are running, we're just under two weeks to go. What are the latest polls? Uh, Macron is slightly down, so his post-Ukraine bounce, as we expected, has come down a bit, but he's still comfortably in the lead on 28-29. Marine Le Pen is second on about 18-19, and then things are a little bit closer with the next three. So we've got Jean-Luc Mélenchon on 13, Valérie Pécresse and Eric Zemmour both on around 10%. But over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Zemmour and Pécresse go down and Mélenchon go up, so that's kind of the momentum. I also did an informal straw poll at my hairdressers on uh, on Saturday. Uh, it seemed that everyone there hated Macron, but once we got into the other candidates, it seemed like they hated the other candidates even more. So a narrow win for Macron in my hairdressers in um, Lilila. Now, Sam, uh, one of the issues that has been uh, talked about recently is, again, Macron's complacency. He's been on television defending himself against accusations that he's not campaigning enough. He's not on, on television enough. He's not getting stuck in. He's not debating with candidates. What's he had to say for himself? Well, you're exactly right. He went on the France 3 television channel on Sunday uh, and he basically said, look, 
I'll be honest with you, I love campaigning. Um, you know, people variously describe Macron as a political animal. He's a beast on the campaign trail, but he said simply, I'm too busy. Um, you know, there's the Russian-led... He does have a point, I think. I mean, there's the Russian-led invasion of Ukraine. He's been one of the big international statesmen um, trying to kind of bring the different sides together and find some kind of peaceful resolution there. There's the, you know, rising fuel prices. His government are going to be cutting oil prices, petrol prices by 15 cents per litre. That uh, comes into into play on April the 1st this week. April the 1st, exactly. Well, And then, yeah, he simply says, I'm too busy. I'd love to be on the campaign, but it's not possible. OK, I've just got a quote here from uh, Dominic Rainey, head of the influential Fonda Paul think tank. Uh, he told journalists this week when he was talking about the election, we cannot be sure of anything. This is not an election like any other and I cannot see in any way that the result is certain. We could say one thing today and tomorrow it could be different. That's a kind of a warning for Macron, no Emma? Yeah, I think so. And you've seen this week that his party, his ministers have kind of stepped up campaigning a lot. There's been a lot more rallies, but they've not been headed by Macron himself. They've been headed by his sort of Macron loyalist ministers. So people like Clement Bone, Gabriel Attal, Christophe Castanet. So they've been campaigning, but it's still not Macron. And it kind of feels, I think, for some people like paying for a gig and only the support act turn up. It's not quite the same because I mean, we've got to remember that this isn't the parliamentary elections. They're not till June. So we're not voting for Macron's party. We're voting for Macron himself for the role of president. So to be sending his ministers out to campaign on his behalf strikes some people as a bit arrogant and removed. He has promised he will get stuck in, uh, you know, over the next few weeks. We talked in previous podcasts about whether a, a scandal could emerge that could derail one of the candidates' campaign. There's been a whiff of a scandal around Macron, the so-called L'Affaire McKinsey. It's complicated. Can you fill us in? Yeah, this is McKinsey & Company. They're a US firm. They're a consultancy and accounting firm. And they have quite a few contracts with the French government going back a few years now on various projects. They were also quite involved with the vaccine rollout, like the logistics of it. They had a 12 million euro contract for that. There was a bit of sort of people trying to whip up a scandal last year and the year before that they were involved at all, that the French government needed help from these external US consultants. But the more recent allegations, shall we say, is that they haven't been paying their corporation tax in France, even though they have quite high turnover in France. So we should point out that the company themselves say that they've done nothing wrong, but this is the latest sort of iteration of this affair. And Sam, what's Macron had to say about it? Uh, Macron has come out and said that firstly he's not shocked that his own ministers need help from the outside. Uh, he said previous governments also um, brought in kind of external help and he says that if McKinsey have kind of breached the law then they will face legal consequences for doing so but he seems more or less to be playing it down as you would expect. Yeah, the government spokesperson Gabriel Attal came out and said look the British government spent 40 times more on private consultancies than France did. We don't think this is a scandal that's going to derail Macron's campaign, not at this late stage. Someone who's had a, a bad time, a bad campaign, things seem to be going from bad to worse, is poor Valérie Pécresse. The reason it's gone from bad to worse this week is she caught COVID, which has kind of made it you know, quite hard to campaign. She, her big TV appearance had to be done over Zoom. It didn't go very well, Emma. No, bless her. She had all sorts of problems with her connection. She was saying she could hear herself talking back in her ear, which, to be fair to her, is very distracting. But she gave a, a not particularly good interview for these various reasons. One thing that we could be sympathetic towards Valerie uh, is the fact that Nicolas Sarkozy, former president, you know, who really is a key figure in the centre-right party, Les Républicains, he just hasn't come out and said he's going to support her. 
Surely we could be sympathetic for that. Yeah, there's quite a lot of speculation that he will come out and support Macron. At the moment, he's just pointedly saying nothing. Um, for me, I think he just likes to be the centre of attention. He likes the fact that everybody's talking about what he's going to say. Yes, indeed. I mean, if we're just talking about previous French presidents, one story that caught my eye was about Francois Hollande, the former socialist president. Now, apparently, this was a story that came out in Le Monde, that Hollande, who we should remind ourselves, didn't run for a second term because he was so unpopular that he realised he himself couldn't be, uh, he couldn't win. He was apparently waiting in the wings in case Anne Hidalgo, the Socialist Party candidate, who's polling around 2-3%, was uh, pulled out. Which kind of like is remarkable for me. You know, this guy who was so unpopular he couldn't stand for president was thinking about making a comeback. Yeah, it just shows the lack of options they've got on the left, really, that they're trying to choose between a very unpopular candidate and an extremely unpopular candidate. It really does, yeah. Anne Hidalgo didn't pull out. She hasn't pulled out yet. With two weeks to go, it doesn't look like she is going to pull out. She's polling on... 2%. And don't, I mean, don't some political analysts blame the whole decline of the French Socialist Party on François Hollande as well? There's kind of, there's lots of, lots of things with it. But yes, he was certainly the person who sort of became dramatically less popular once he was in the Elysee. So for him to sort of sweep in as the saviour is maybe pushing it a bit. Although, to be fair, we should point out that in public, he's been nothing but loyal and supportive to Anne Hidalgo. He was on stage with her at a campaign rally, so this could be just journalist chat. Sam, you've been looking at this various election merchandise you can buy in France during the campaign. Can you just explain... What's going on here? Is it true that you can buy Communist Party condoms? You can buy Communist Party condoms and you can buy Communist Party frisbees um, for a mere five euros with a three euro postage fee. Right. So, yeah, no, that's some of the stranger merchandise that I've seen Indeed. over the course of this election. Um, but there's plenty of like pretty creepy stuff as well, actually, that the candidates are selling. For cool. example, um, the far right pundit turned politician Eric Zemmour is selling T-shirts which say Fête the mort, pas la guerre, which is like a play on words for Fête la mort, pas la guerre, make love, not war. Indeed. And when you go to the to the campaign events, you know, it is like going to a gig in a way. You do walk past this kind of whole, you know, uh, tables of T-shirts and mugs and pens and key rings that, uh, that the candidate or the parties or uh, campaigns are trying to sell to you. Is this just money making? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the candidates say that the the proceeds from the sale of this merch goes towards funding their campaign. That's certainly the argument put forward by uh, Fabien Roussel and his Communist Party condoms. Uh, they also sell lighters. So that means you've got lighters, condoms, they sell earrings. What and, I'm frisbees. What, and frisbees. All you need for a night out. What I'm, well, what I'm trying to say to you is that the French Communist Revolution sounds like a bit of a party. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Just a reminder to our listeners, this podcast is only possible thanks to those who've supported us by becoming members of The Local. It takes time and resources to produce our independent journalism. If you're not yet a member but would like to join, you can find a practically irresistible price for your first month by visiting thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. Okay, moving on, Emma and Sam. We just wanted to look at this reader question this week, which is about Eric Zemmour. Now, in the autumn, Eric Zemmour was the talking point of the French election campaign. He came out of nowhere. You know, in France, he was, you know, known as a, as a columnist and a TV pundit. Suddenly, he was being talked about as making the second round of the French election. In recent weeks or recent months, his polling numbers have steadily fallen to the point where, you know, he doesn't look like he's got any chance of making the second round. Emma, 
How do we explain the the rise and fall of of Zamor in the polls? Well, I think there's two things that happened here. And the first thing was that really the media coverage he got was always a bit out of proportion to the actual success that he had. I think it's partly the fact just that he was a new face in politics, whereas the others were Macron and Le Pen. So that was just a bit same old, same old. In France, he was already pretty well known. He was on telly a lot. He wrote books. So you had a sort of Donald Trump effect when a celebrity joins a race. And I think on the international level, we certainly saw a lot of international coverage about him. Some of it was just right-wing papers who picked up someone who were endorsed their views. And I think we also kind of have to remember that there are some right-wing British newspapers who are deeply hostile to Emmanuel Macron and would literally endorse anyone who had any kind of chance of defeating or even upsetting Macron. Zamor's message back in October was anti-immigration, you know, talking about crime. And that's really all he's had to say throughout four months. It's kind of, that message has got tired, Emma, no? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the difference between him and, and Le Pen and Melanchor, who have their own Putin-supporting baggage, that Zamor really has nothing to say on anything apart from immigration and a sort of culture war, anti-woke type agenda that he uh, that he pushes with various extra ideas. So one of his recent ideas is to take children with disabilities out of mainstream schools because he says it's inclusion gone mad. So these are the kind of issues that he's trying to push. But as you said, I just think when, when there's a war on and there's a cost of living crisis, people have now got real things to worry about. And it, for me, the Politico uh, columnist Claire Calcutt put this quite nicely, saying that Zemmour focuses on la fin de la France, the end of France, whereas what people are actually worried about is the fin du mois, the end of the month, and can they pay their bills? Indeed. And there, there have been mistakes by Zamor and, and there are there have been, you know, uh, events outside the campaign, notably the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that haven't really uh, benefited, you know, uh, Zamor. His old quote of from 2018 when he said, I dream of a French Putin, hasn't really aged well. I think, you know, he has made some basic errors as well in the campaign. Uh, he was asked about what should we do with Ukrainian refugees. Now, 79% of French people agree that France should welcome refugees. Eric Zemmour said, basically said, no, you know, they should stay in Poland so they can go back home to Ukraine. I mean, it really is tone deaf, that kind of response during a time of war. So, uh, you know, the verdict is, yes, there's been reasons for Zemmour's fall, but we certainly haven't seen the end of him. Guys, I'd actually like to to ask you both, do you think maybe he's suffering now as well because we've seen other candidates moving to the right? I mean, even you had President Macron coming out the other day and saying, je suis contre le wokisme. You know, when you have Macron, the president, talking about wokeism and encroaching on on Zemmour's turf, do you think that's also part of the reason why he's looking a bit isolated? Well, I think the... Most of the sort of heavyweight political analysts in France have always said that Zemmour's real goal was never being elected the president this time. His real goal is to shift the political debate in France to the right and so that his ideas, which are now seen as extreme, become the mainstream. And so his real goal is 2027. So before we get too cocky about the failure of his project this time that we should maybe worry about, it's not the end. Right, let's change the subject. France's political discourse is frequently punctuated by flare-ups around the place of Islam in the country and how it fits in with the core principle of laïcité or secularism. To help explain these outbreaks of angst and anger, the local's editor Emma spoke to French legal academic Rim Sarah Alouane from the University Toulouse-Capitole. She specialises in religious freedom, civil liberties and constitutional law. Let's hear what she had to say. So could you start by explaining to us what laïcité is? Because honestly, I never feel more foreign than when French people bring this up. 
I think it is one of the most misunderstood concept, uh, term, idea. Ask any French, uh, it will be hard for them to define laïcité. Laïcité is a concept that was born during the revolution. This idea started to emerge that uh, there need to be some sort of independence between the power of like the religious power and also the state. If you want a comparison with the United States, we perceive the protection of religious freedom differently. In the US, the, the wall of separation, really, the First Amendment implies that we protect freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, the people against the potential abuses of the states on that matter. In France, it's the other way around. We are pretty uh, suspicious towards religion. So the idea is really to protect the state against the potential abuses. So how would you say that laïcité has evolved in modern politics, especially regarding the current election campaign? Regarding modern times, uh, the shift started, I think, after decolonization, after, let's say, the 1960s, and also the first wave of immigration in France, which has started to see the country changing in matter of uh, diversity, especially. And a lot of, not only, but a lot of Muslim North African immigrants came to France for labor purposes. And uh, that's where France started somehow to struggle with its own identity and its colonial past as well. And ever since the 90s, and uh, we started to perceive laïcité as a way to keep in track certain religion, to name it, especially one, Islam. It started in 1989, really, with the famous headscarf affair, where two girls were expelled from school for wearing a headscarf. And a whole debate, a broad debate, started about laicity, its meaning, and also national identity. So there is this anxiety vis-a-vis Islam, which since the 90s, and especially since 2004, and the first law adopted to prohibit conspicuous religious science in public school, which actually, when you look at the debate really targeting the headscarf, we witness a transformation of laïcité in its interpretation. We witness what I call a weaponization of laïcité. Laïcité became a tool for political identity aimed to erase religious visibility from the public and especially Islam. It seems like a bit of an obvious question, but is this something that worries Muslim communities in France when they hear these kind of ideas going mainstream? The more actually Muslims feel enough confidence to be visible in their country, to contribute to it, to bring their, uh, their input into the fabric of society, the more they are deemed a threat. What is at stake here is the visibility. Muslims were okay, you know, in the first wave of immigration when they just remained silent, worked for France. They were the labor which hide in the banlieue and couldn't say anything by fear of deportation. Now we have today Muslims who are born and raised in this country, native-born French people who just want to live as citizens. There was a story recently that involved a female football team who wanted to play football while wearing the hijab, the Muslim headscarf. And in the end, their event was cancelled because it was deemed a security risk. And to an outsider, this just seems insane. This woman wants to play football, which is probably the first religion in this country, really. (laughs) I mean, let's face it, everybody agreed on football at some point. But uh, no, like, it's not only we are at odds with the FIFA rules, 
right? Uh, which allow women to um, to actually play as long as you know the headscarf abide by certain security rules, which is perfectly fine, right? But it's very interesting because in the narrative of our political elite and including this administration, we want to save women to make them free. But what I'm observing right now is, you know, um, we have women who happens to be Muslim who literally just want to compete, play football, they're athletes. And who is preventing them from doing so? What are we going to do when we are going to host international competition? Ask athletes from the US, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Canada, or whatever, to remove the headscarf because we are in a secular nation. Uh, by the way, it actually contradicts and go against the very essence of the law of 1905. Again, religious freedom applies to silver servants, to the people representing the state, the state itself. Uh, of course, the headscarf in some countries is imposed on a woman and it is wrong. A woman should decide. And I think that forcing a woman to wear a headscarf or certain type of clothes, I mean, beyond the headscarf, and forcing a woman to, with, to, to remove her headscarf or to dress a certain way is wrong. In both cases, let women choose. It's 2022. Yeah, people say it's about religion, it's about the law, it's about laicity, but it does always seem to come down to what Muslim women wear. The more French Muslims are integrated, the more it is perceived as, a, as some sort of threat to a national identity. We still see or perceive ourselves as a colonial power, and uh, we still perceive uh, diversity as an identity threat. And if we believe that a piece of clothes <laughs> really is a threat to our culture, then our culture is not that strong. And I don't believe that. And yeah, this is something that people ask us about a lot. Why does France, the secular state, have all these Catholic holidays like Ascension, Assumption? What, what is all that about? I have nothing against holidays. Bring them all. <laughs> but uh, I'm French. I mean, I behave like one. Uh, but uh, but you you can see the, the double standards here, how in a way we keep claiming how secular we are, how like, I should say, we are. But at the same time, when other religions here come at play, all of a sudden we are a Christian nation that has to be protected against the invaders. It seems like we're getting another five years of Emmanuel Macron. So do you have any confidence that he will tackle these issues? He had five years to address this issue. Uh, in 2017, so when he won, for what it was, he was one of the very few candidates, and we have to admit it, who didn't uh, like run his campaign on identity issues. Unfortunately, things have changed a lot, especially after all the tragic events we had to face, uh, terrorist attacks and so on, uh, up to that pandemic. And it's very interesting because we have a double discourse with Macron. So you have Macron speaking to the international community, France, laicite, yada, yada. And then you have his administration who say the opposite. You have Marlene Schiappa, so uh, secretary to citizenship, who would declare you that, you know, uh, we need to prohibit the headscarf uh, in certain situations, who would have a very illiberal vision of laicity, Jean-Michel Blanquer, who does not even hide his project. Like he announced it himself to have an extremely restricted interpretation of laicity, a very illiberal one for him and targeting especially one religion. 
for example, Gérald Darmanin, our Minister of Interior, if you remember, at the very, very beginning of the discussion after the horrific murder of uh, Samuel Paty by, uh, you know, it was a terrorist attack, right, who declared that the existence of ethnic food aisle, and especially the existence of halal and kosher aisles, were uh, communautarism. So were inherently uh, a form of separatism, which eventually would lead to radicalization. I mean, it's completely wild, but this is part of the discourse today. The local France has over 10,000 members. Their contributions help us grow our coverage of France and allow us to produce this podcast. If you'd like to join at a discount price, visit www.thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. If you're a foreigner living in France or have plans to move here, changes to immigration policy can have a direct effect on your life. This week, we've been looking at what the candidates in the 2022 French presidential election propose for foreigners in France. Sam, you've been looking at this in more detail. Tell us a bit more, for example. Let's start with Macron. Any policies that stand out that could affect uh, foreigners in France? Yeah, so Emmanuel Macron, obviously, as we've already mentioned, the front runner in this race, he's proposed a number of issues on immigration. Uh, these include giving out long-term residency cards only to those who've passed a French exam and have a job uh, and the means to support themselves. It includes reforming the Schengen zone to make it harder for non-Europeans to get in, uh, reinforcing the French border force, expelling foreigners who have upset the public order. That will go down down well with the French right. And then he's also talked about reforming the asylum process to make it easier to decide who can stay and who should be expelled more efficiently. And if we talk about the right, the candidates Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour on the extreme right and Valérie Pécresse on the centre-right, Sam... What have they been talking about? What policies have they got for foreigners in France? Yeah, they've got an interesting cocktail of policies ranging from everything to cutting off kind of social benefit support to migrants living in France, uh, to treating all requests for asylum overseas, uh, which would make it harder to gain asylum in in France. That's what campaigners say. And also ending all non-economic migration. So basically, in the views of Le Pen, it's only worth migrating to France if you can contribute uh, economically to the country. Uh, They also all talk variously about giving priorities in housing um, to the French and giving jobs to the French uh, rather than giving them to foreigners. So that's very much the line they're taking. At the other end of the scale is Jean-Luc Mélenchon. He's definitely the most pro-immigration. He wants to kind of bring in more refugees to France. He says we need to show humanity when it comes to immigration policy. He's talking about making 10-year residency cards the new standard. I think unlike Macron, we can imagine in this kind of hypothetical world where where Mélenchon is elected, we can imagine that there won't be as many kind of tests or economic requirements to get this card in the first place. Yeah, and he's also kind of suggested he wants to make it easier to become a French citizen. Now, you mentioned that one of the uh, requirements to become a French citizen is having a certain level of French. And many candidates talk about making it harder for people to become French or making it the, the language test harder. Emma, this is something that you know about. How hard are they? Well, 
What's interesting about these proposals is that uh, a lot of the candidates are proposing not only that you need a French test to become a citizen, but you need a French test to become a resident, so in order to get a residency card. But what really stuck out for me and what I find quite annoying is that none of them actually specify what level of French you need. So is it, you know, a basic test where you can uh, order a baguette or are they expecting degree level French? Nobody really knows. And actually for people already living in France, that's huge. Are you going to be able to keep your residency or not? It would be helpful if they could specify at least vaguely what they're asking for, but there's absolutely no detail about that at the moment. You were talking about citizenship earlier. Uh, what the system we have at the moment is that there's no formal language requirement for residency, but you do need a uh, need to pass a French exam if you want to become a citizen. Uh, the requirements for this were actually toughened up a couple of years ago, so you now need to pass a written test as well as uh, listening and speaking tests. And there used to be an exemption for over 60s, which has now been scrapped. But even for citizenship, the level you need is B1 on the Delft scale, so that's defined as being capable of dealing with everyday situations. Ordering a baguette. Ordering a baguette. I think you, they need slightly higher than uh, than that, so it would be like an appointment at the prefecture, going to the doctor, something, uh, something like that. Um, you also need to maintain and understand a discussion and give an opinion. So it's a reasonable level of uh, of French that's required, but they're not asking for total fluency at all. Whereas Eric Zemmour's manifesto, for example, demands perfect French in order to become a citizen. Again, Macron and Pécresse both say that you need a French exam to get a residency card, but don't say what level of exam. So I guess we'll find out if any of them get elected. It's time to bring in our resident political columnist, John Litchfield. John's been writing a weekly column about the election race for the local France, and you can read them all on our website at thelocal.fr. Morning, John. Thanks for joining us on the line from Normandy. John, four in ten voters are apparently still undecided who they're going to vote for. There's been various warnings in recent days from political experts, from politicians, about voter complacency. In other words, perhaps... Reluctant Macron voters taking it for granted that he's going to win the first round and the second round. So just not bothering to turn out to vote. John, is there still a a possibility of a huge twist in the tail of this French election race? Well, I I suppose there is always that possibility. I think um, politics, electoral politics, hates a done deal. You know, Uh, that's like uh, nature hating a vacuum that the media anyway, and also political operatives get very jumpy with any election that seems to be decided a couple of weeks out. I mean, you know, I've covered elections in the US, Canada, Belgium, all sorts of places, and it's always that way. The campaign that seems certain to win gets jittery two weeks out, and the campaign that seems certain to lose become convinced they're going to win because they're in their own bubble and and they only see the people who who support them. I think there is obviously this time reasons for concern. One is that the interest in the election remains relatively low, partly because people are distracted by the war now rather than by COVID as it was before. Uh, partly just that, yes, there is that sense of the done deal. Partly there isn't any great enthusiasm for any of the candidates, not even for Macron, it's that within his own bubble. Um, so it's been a very strange campaign and therefore strange things can happen. I think some of this stuff that's out there is being deliberately wound up by the Macron people in a, in a sense to try and have a self-defeating prophecy that, you know, you get people worried and anxious and get them out to the polls in that way. So that's perfectly legitimate, no, no demographic thing to do. I, I don't see any chance of Macron not being in the second round. He's, he's miles ahead of Le Pen. 
uh, the leader in the first round polls and personally still doesn't see any chance of Le Pen beating him or anyone else beating him in the second round. But yes, you know, surprises can happen. Okay. If we talk about one possible surprise, uh, it could be uh, far left Jean-Luc Mélenchon making the second round. We talked about last week how he had a similar rise just before the first round in the 2017 election. John, for Mélenchon to make the second round, who are the voters he needs to win over? I think uh, he has to do two things, Ben, really. He has to take some of what's left of the other left-wing candidates to vote. Now, there isn't much left of it. You know, here you have... And Hidalgo, the uh, socialist candidate, the candidate of a party that was in power until five years ago, uh, with 2% of the vote. Um, last time, he, his, his final spurt was, was, was driven by taking votes away from the then socialist candidate, Benoit Amon. There isn't much left to take from the, the mainstream socialists. There's not a lot to take from the Greens or the communists. And essentially, those who are there are people who are still voting for those people because they detest Mélenchon and don't like what he stands for. It's going to be difficult for him to take more of those votes. He can take some. I think to get in up to with Le Pen, he needs to get out the people you were talking about before, the kind of shy voters, those who've got given up on this election, have given up on politics maybe in some cases. If they believe he can get in the second round, it's possible that more of those kind of anti-political leftists will join in and support Mélenchon. So he has to do that. I think something else has to happen as well, which is that Le Pen's vote has to come down a bit. And um, as I think I've said before, Le Pen is odd, Marine Le Pen is odd, intending to do worse in elections than she does in polls. That's the opposite of most far-right candidates ever in existence, and certainly the opposite of her father, who would always do better than the polls suggest he would. There seems now to be a kind of, yes, we'll vote for Le Pen, but they don't turn out to vote out there. And if that happens this time and she gets two points less than the polls are suggesting, and uh, Mélenchon gets another couple of points more than the polls are suggesting at the moment, then that could be very close. I still think Le Pen will be the second sure. candidate in the second round, but it's possible. Now, look, John, it is victory speech in 2017 in the Louvre. Macron said he would do everything in his power so French voters don't vote for extremist candidates again. Now, extremist candidates, you know, on the left, far left and far right will, or looking like they will gain another big share of the vote this time round. Has Macron failed on that front, to, to, to turn voters away front, from the extremists? On that front, there's no doubt he has failed, but it was always a kind of rather idle uh, claim that he could do that. But things, in a sense, have got worse. You know, I mean, it, it depends who you take as being the extreme, but if you add Zamor and Le Pen's vote together, it's interestingly, if you add Zamor and Le Pen's vote together, it's always been around just over 30%, but the two kind of balance each other out. But then there are a couple of other people like Dupont-Aignan who are also fairly far-right extremists. So there's a, a far-right vote out there of 33 34%, and then you had, had the Mélenchon vote, which is also pretty extremist. Certainly he wants to dismantle the system as, as it exists, the status quo as it exists, European Union and all of that, as well as within France. So, that, you know, you add all that together, you're getting up towards somewhere in, in the mid-40s of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a sort of anti-system vote in France, which is not, I suppose, very complementary to what Macron's done, but I don't think it's entirely Macron's fault or being created only in the last four or five years. It's partly the kind of identity politics we have, not just in France, but in the rest of the world, where there is a sort of rejection of the elites, rejection of the system, belief in rather strange conspiracy theories out there, something like 50% of the both 
The Mélenchon and Le Pen vote believes in, in conspiracy theories in one kind or another. And, you know, you have to say there has been a certain complacency on the part of the system towards those who are left out of success in this country, um, both not just in the... Um, in my parts of the world, rural parts of the world, where we saw the gilets jaunes emerge, but also in in the in the banlieue, in, in the uh, the sort of multiracial banlieue, as well as the, the sort of outer white blue collar banlieue. So on a kind of similar note, if it is Le Pen versus Macron, a rerun of two thousand seventeen, does this just say that France hasn't really changed in five years? I think you know one thing that has changed, Ben, is that the, the the status quo of French politics, as we used to know it until five years ago, has disappeared. Basically, you know, I mean, if you look at the combined vote of Hidalgo, the socialist candidate I mentioned, two percent, uh, Valérie Pécresse, the centre-right, Les Republicains candidate, the two parties of well, Mitterrand and Chirac or, or of Sarkozy and Hollande, they have a combined vote of about 13% at the moment, whereas they were something well over 50% in the first round until five years ago, saying ten years, five years before that. So those two parties are on the way to, to destruction and disappearance. And I think um, whatever happens, whatever the result of this election, well, not almost whatever, but despite the fact that Macron's probably going to win this time, I think there's going to be a continuing huge upheavals in, in French politics in the next five years. And we're only kind of one third or two thirds of the way there. I think the last election began it, this one will continue it. And the next time there could be a big heave by a more united party of the right, hard right and far right, which would be scarier than anything we've seen this time. Don't forget, if you'd like to be able to read John's weekly analysis on France and all our articles, you can join now at a discount price by visiting www.thelocal.fr slash podcast offer. It's that time of the week where we help you learn a bit of French uh, with some key French phrases that have emerged during the election campaign. Emma, fire away. Well, we mentioned this topic earlier, so I'm going to bring Islamo-Gauchisme, which means Islamo-Leftism, with the left being the political left, obviously. Um, it's used mainly as an insult by people on the right towards people on the left. It started out by meaning people on the left who were blind to Islamic extremism. It's kind of broadened out a bit since then, and it's now used as an insult towards people on the left who are seen as overly concerned with identity politics or diversity. And as you would expect, it's kind of slung around as quite a general insult, really, from anyone on the right towards people on the left. It's sort of the French equivalent of the culture wars in English, although French has also imported the concept of woke culture. Um, you'll sometimes hear the Frenchified version of this, which is Le wokisme, which I have to say I thought was stir-fry cookery when I first heard it, but it's not. And they will sometimes just use the English word woke. It seems to be being imported more and more into the French discourse. Indeed it is. I've gone for a slightly different French expression this week that caught my eye. It was used regarding Sarkozy, who we talked about previously, who's kind of stuck between supporting Pécresse and Macron, who we think he probably prefers to see as president. It was, j'ai le cul entre deux chaises. So basically, I've got my ass, or I've got my bottom between two chairs. So he's kind of caught in the middle, stuck between two, a rock and a hard place, can we say? Which is, it's a great French expression, I think. And it kind of, it brought up another quote that, that Sarkozy had once said of Valérie Pécresse, which is probably why he hasn't come out in support of her. He said... Elle a pris un melon, Valérie. Elle ne passe plus sous l'arc de triomphe. And this comes from the expression avoir le melon, which is basically to be big-headed. So he basically thinks Valérie Pécresse has become too big-headed 
that she now no longer passes under the Arc de Triomphe. So, I mean, really, he's not really a big fan of Valerie, we can say that. Thanks to Emma and Sam for joining me this week on the podcast. And that's your lot for this week's episode. Thanks to all our listeners. And it always helps to spread the word. So if you like what you hear, please feel free to recommend our podcast to your friends and family. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We'll be back with more next week.